thanks again for um, inviting me to give this talk. Um, this talk is actually based on a chapter on pre-modern critical intersectionality, race, gender, and sexuality that is forthcoming in a Bloomsbury series on the cultural history of race. Um, I was one of the editors of the volume for 1350-1550, and this is one of the essays. Um, I wrote this with Michelle Sauer. So um, I, um, we, I wanna frame it out by saying, I realized that we had multiple examples in this or case studies, but I will really only be concentrating on one because of time. Um, I'd like to begin by with a sort of very brief land acknowledgement. So I'm a settler of color. I'm currently on the stolen and unceded territory of the Massachusetts and Pawtucket. Um, because I'm also in the United States, I don't really know how that sort of return will happen because of the state of the US, but um, it is something we should discuss and hope for. Um, so this talk, Race, Gender, Sexuality, Pre-Modern Critical Intersectionality, um, really thinks about the pre-modern arch archive in relationship to the ongoing critical discussion in intersectionality. Sumi Cho, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Leslie McCall in their 2013 article, Toward a Field of Intersectionality Studies, Theory, Applications, and Praxis, define the tripartite structure of intersectionality studies as, quote, first consisting of applications of an intersectional framework or investigation of intersectional dynamics, the second consisting of discursive debates about the scope and content of intersectionality as a theoretical and methodological paradigm, and the third consisting of political interventions employing an intersectional lens, unquote. The first intersectional engagement really considers how a multi-access intersectional frame can help rethink specific contextual research and teaching projects. The second intersectional engagement addresses theory and methodology and asks, quote, whether this is an essential subject of intersectionality and if so, whether the subject is a statistic statically situated in terms of identity, geography, or temporality, or is dynamically constituted within institutions and structures that are neither temporally nor spatially circumscribed, unquote. This area is especially central to discussions in pre-modern fields because of the dynamic flux in constituting identities in different geographies and the trans-historical discussion that any work of pre-modern critical intersectionality must undertake. Finally, the third area addresses how intersectionality requires not just theory and methodology, but also praxis, particularly in relationship to politics, activism, and resistance. Our essay resituates um, this work and then examines it in relationship to the pre-modern archive. In this talk, I hope to demonstrate how pre-modern critical intersectionality should address all three areas discussed in Cho, Crenshaw, and McCall's piece through one European case study, the legal documentation of Jewish women in court cases in 13th century medieval England. In the chapter, I, um, uh, Michelle Sauer and I also cover the cases of uh, St. Mary of Egypt in the Byzantine Empire in relationship to black, a black transgender lens and misogynoir, and the intersection of race, gender, disability with the life writings of Teresa of Cartagena in late medieval Iberia. Of course, intersectionality is also always under construction, especially since the various identity categories we are discussing are always in flux in the pre-modern past. Thus, pre-modern critical intersectionality will also be dependent on local conditions, geographies, time periods, and group dynamics. Um, intersectionality was coined by the Black feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. When Crenshaw coined the term, she applied it specifically to US law and sought to explain the intersection of race and gender 
through, quote, a black feminist criticism, unquote, because it's set, because, quote, it's set forth, it sets forth a problematic consequence of the tendency to treat race and gender as mutually explicit categories of, ex of experience and analysis, unquote. Since much of, the of much of critical race theory is often developed in the field of law, specifically to address legal structures and systems, the theoretical development in relationship to anti-discrimination law is not a surprise. Likewise, she points to the field of feminist theory and anti-racist politics to clarify the uh, other areas that must contend with intersectionality and move beyond a single axis framework. What Crenshaw proposes instead is to examine structural methodology with a multi-axis framework. Importantly, her study reveals how single axis frameworks cannot account for black women's experience of the law. Quote, with black women as a starting point, it becomes more apparent how dominant conceptions of discrimination, um, uh, discrimination condition, uh, condition us to think about subordination as disadvantage occurring along a single categorical, uh, categorical axis. I want to suggest further that this single axis framework erases black women in the conceptualization, identification, and remediation of race and sex discrimination by limiting inquiry to the experiences of otherwise privileged members of the group. In other words, in race discrimination cases, discrimination tends to be viewed in terms of sex or class privileged blacks. In sex discrimination cases, the focus is on race and class privileged women, unquote. In other words, Crenshaw notes the historical systematic erasure of black women in the legal archive as a function of methodology, Specifically, she argues black women are rendered, black women are rendered invisible in the archive when our discussion of gender fail to consider race and when our discussions of race fail to consider gender. The theory of intersectionality goes back further in black queer um, feminist discourse uh, with the work of the um, Kumbali River Collective. The CRC, oh, the CRC, uh, CRC called on prevailing feminist and racial justice movements to account for the unique experience of black, queer, black and queer women. The CRC laid out their political goals and theoretical praxis in 1977 in the Kambali River Collective Statement in which they first discussed identity politics. Um, the CRC articulated its argument within a compelling genealogy of theorists and activists, including Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, Demita Frazier, and Kimberly Kenshaw, to name a few. The collective underscored the centrality of what Crenshaw calls compounded harm in any intersectional analysis or politics, the idea that multiple oppressions reinforce each other to create new categories of suffering. Kianga Ayamada Taylor's work on how we get free writes, uh, writes further detail about this and how the CRC theorized oppression. Quote, the CRC described oppression as interlocking or happening simultaneously thus creating new measures of oppression and inequality. In other words, black women could not quantify their oppression only in terms of sexism or racism or of homophobia experienced by black lesbians. They were not ever a single category, but, was, uh, but it was the merging or enmeshment of those, of those identities that compounded how black women experienced oppression." Unquote. These discussions of Crenshaw and the Kumbahe River Collective's work highlight the main tenets of intersectionality, quote, multi-axis frameworks and interlocking oppressions leading to what, what, um, to what, what leading to compounded harm, unquote. There seems to be a regular mistake made by medievalists who worked in feminism to imagine that the experience of interlocking oppression is akin to, to stacking Legos, that oppressions can be detached and reassembled to form identities. 
The reality is that these identity markers, especially race, are mutually constructed and mutually reinforcing. The Lego approach leads to false equivalency, false equivalence fallacies, and, and instead to speak about feminism is then to speak about black feminism. To speak about disabilities is then speak about black feminist disability. To speak about LGBTQIA is to speak about black transgender lives and structural oppressions. It is not enough to discuss marginalization when foregrounding intersectionality. Instead, race must always be at the center of such conversations. Whiteness as a category um, necessarily can and should be interrogated if it is the only racial identity present. Connections between categories is simply not enough. Generally, an approach that centers pre-modern critical intersectionality in discussing gender is quite rare in medieval studies. Uh, finally, in following Margot Hendricks' discussion of PCRS, pre-modern critical race theory, uh, race studies versus pre-modern um, race uh, studies at race before race periodicity, I would like to distinguish between the work of pre-modern critical intersectionality and pre-modern intersectionality. Pre-modern sexuality and queer studies has also neglected this critical genealogy. The most recent work on transgender medieval feminist criticism um, has pointed out the issue and tried to realign the critical genealogy to center Black and Latinx transgender women and their critical and creative work at the beginning and center of critical medieval transgender theory. This is not just an issue in pre-modern gender, sexuality, and queer studies. Intersectional praxis and critical genealogies have been discussed in relation to queer of color critique in the field of queer studies for several decades. Michael Jamez Garcia and Ernesto Javier Martinez discuss the unfolding genealogies and futures of queer of color critique and their work makes clear that critical intersectionality is about working in identity politics and cannot be shunted to some nebulous category of marginalization. They argue that, quote, queer politics can often mask not only an investment in whiteness, but also a Eurocentric insistence on whiteness as an unquestioned norm, unquote. Um, Haram Perez explains, quote, um, a great deal of queer theorizing has sought to displace identity politics with an alternative anti-identitarian model, often perhaps disingenuous, disingenuously christened the politics of difference. This model accommodates familiar habits of the university's ideal bourgeois subject, among them his imperial gaze, his universalism, and his claim to a race-neutral objectivity. It is not surprising then to find buried underneath the boot of this established establishmentarian anti-identity all sorts of dissident bodies, unquote. Likewise, to work on pre-modern critical intersectionality in line with the intertwined genealogies that comprise race, gender, and sexuality studies is to firmly work on identity politics and is thus always about politics. Hamas Garcia's article in the Gay Latino Reader lays out a state of the field in queer studies, examines and critiques its white racial genealogy, and then also explains the standard white pattern the standard white, quote, pattern of erasure, marginalization, and tokenization, unquote. He also underscores, quote, a central claim to theoretical innovation within queer theory, um, the claim that the category of queer enables critique and transgression of boundaries, identities, and subject positions, unquote. He scrutinizes this claim as a form of, quote, ontological denial that enables queer theory to mask its own dependence on an unacknowledged white racial identity, unquote. Jamis Garcia describes these white queer genealogies in two camps, separatist and integrationist. Queer theory's separatist account eschews intersectionality by decoupling, quote, sexuality as distinct from gender, race, and class, unquote. 
Jemez Garcia's evaluation of the separatist thread explains its logic, quote, these narratives depend for their coherence, however, on their erasure or rejection of several decades of persistent calls within feminism, anti-racist movements, and lesbian gay of color theory and activism to understand how different aspects of identity interconnect and mutually constitute each other, so as to make separation futile at best and mystifying at worst, um, unquote. In other words, the separatist line of discussion rejects the history and discussion of critical intersectionality. Meanwhile, Hamas Garcia explains integrationist approach in this way, quote, integrationist accounts of queer theory attempt to respond to the challenge posed by the multiplicity of identity that separatist accounts avoid. While separatists attempt to distinguish or disarticulate sexuality from race and gender, integrationists advocate for queer theory as a way to address the multiple relations among race, gender, class, and sexuality better than how feminism or other progressive movements and theories have. Integrationists do so most often, however, by eschewing or bracketing identity questions and using the deliberately vague category queer to blur lines among different social locations. The most strident versions drawing from postmodern critiques of the subject see identity itself as oppressive and always or nearly always dangerous. They dismiss the concept of identity, writing instead of discourses, practices, desires, and the subjects that they create, unquote. He sees the latter pattern as a way to then um, shunt Black Indigenous people of color, quote, from the center of debate in order to reintroduce them later at the margins of gay and lesbian um, theory, unquote. He writes instead an alternative timeline, um, or really a timeline that includes roughly 60 years of work in critical race theory, especially in Black and Latinx feminist and queer studies, that predates and animates this white care canon timeline. This, full, this fully accounted queer theory genealogy includes, and this is um, a list, um, hold on one second. Um, includes James Baldwin's Another Country, 1962, Barbara Smith's article Toward a Black Feminist Criticism, 1977, Audre Lorde's Uses of the Erotic, 1978, um, Pat Parker's Movement in Black, 1978, Foucault's Translated History of Sexuality, 1978, The Combahee River Collective's A Black Feminist Statement, 1979, um, James Baldwin's Just Above My Head, 1979, Adrian Rich's Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Existence, 1980, Cherry Moraga and Amber um, Hollibaugh's uh, What We're Rolling Around in Bed With, Sexual Silence and Feminism, 1981, Moraga and Gloria Anzaldua's This Bridge Called My Back, um, in the early 80s, Gloria Hull, Patricia Bell Scott, Barbara Smith, All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave, 1982, Barbara Smith's Homegirls, 1983, Moraga's Loving in the Warriors, 1983, Marilyn Fry's The Politics of Reality, 1983, and Snitto, um, Christine Stansel, and Sharon Thompson's collection, Powers of Desire, The, the Politics of Sexuality, 1983, um, Sharon Thompson's collection, Pleasure and Danger, um, Exploring Female Sexuality, 1984, Gail Rubin, Thinking Sex, 1984, Joseph Bean's collection, Life, of Black Gay Anthology, 1986, Gloria Anzaldua, Borderlands La Frontera, 1987, Diana Fuss, Essentially Speaking, 1989, Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet, 1990, Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, 1990, Fuss's Inside Out, 1991, Teresa De Loretto's Special Issue on Queer Theory, Lesbian and Gay Sexualities, 1991. Um, in regards to the end of this alternative genealogy, Hamas Garcia makes the point that though De Loretta's coins the term queer theory, 
She concomitantly also said, quote, laments, she laments the fact that queers of color have not yet, have not produced much theory, unquote, uh, which if you, uh, as we go through the list is deeply inaccurate and also uh, rather unrigorous. Um, he further explains that the hierarchy of text always privileges white queer theory and imagines queer of color critique as additive. In addition, this genealogy of queer theory, particularly separatist queer theory, quote, simultaneously marginalizes the legacy of intersectional analysis and centers critical work that takes the whiteness of its object of study for granted. In other words, theorists with an implicit commitment to maintaining the centrality of whiteness can claim to be doing the basic work of sexuality to which, quote, race scholars will add, unquote. I highlight Hamas Garcia's meticulous work through these critical genealogies because they matter. We must attend the moves of whiteness and how even um, identity politics fields, though some of these critical theory areas often want to reject identity politics as a position, replicate a move to whiteness. By whitewashing the genealogy, we will repeat the structures of whiteness again and again. From 1991 forward, there has been more work that has reimagined these conversations while also centering critical intersectionality, including recent work like T.J. Talley's Korean Colonial Natal, Indigeneity and the Violence of Belonging in South Africa, um, Joanna Barker's collection, Critically Sovereign, Indigenous Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies, um, this is Barker's is 2017, Coley Driscoll, Chris Finley, Brian um, Joseph Gilly, and Scott Loria Morganson's collection, Queer Indigenous Studies, Critical Interventions in Theory, Politics and Literature, um, from 2011, Hiram Perez's A Taste of Brown Bodies, Gay Modernity and Cosmopolitan Desire, 2015, Tavia Nyong'o's Afrofabulations, The Queer Drama of Black Life from 2018, C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity, 2017, and more recently, Jose Esteban Munoz's The Sense of Brown from 2020. The critical conversations have been propelled over the last 20 years by the now robust area of queer color critique, expanding into the areas of indigenous and decolonial queer theory, as well as global queer theory in relationship to Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, Central and South America. These are but a sample of the more recent publications in queer of color critique that works with, long, with the longer genealogies of black, indigenous, Latinx and global queer of color theory. Sexuality and queer studies is not the only place in which these issues have been seen. Earlier genealogies in feminist studies and particularly black feminism have pointed to this problem and the importance of critical genealogies that decenter whiteness. Gabrielle Foreman explains that the academic move of whiteness in the following way in relationship to black studies, quote, non-black academics and graduate students like non-gay or non-indigenous scholars, for example, have rightly found the critical paradigms, frameworks and texts that have emerged in the last 40 years to be persuasive, exciting and foundational. These scholars often delve into what's cutting edge and academically sexy, what appears to them to be uncharted waters, virgin uh, land ripe for discovery and conquest. They are often too privileged and encouraged, too rewarded and reluctant to realize that to be responsibly, responsibly trained, contri contributors need to grapple with the discipline's genealogy, background, and long history of serious scholarship, and to undertake what Toni Morrison calls its structures, moorings, and anchors, unquote. Foreman highlights the settler colonial logic of whiteness's belief in its inalienable right to colonize areas of study. You can take her points and think about this in relationship to pre-modern critical race studies. Centering the whiteness of the genealogy is to literally dislodge the longer genealogy of this work that has been done by Black Indigenous people of color scholars 
who have been attendant to the longer genealogies of critical race theory. Finally, um, these genealogies are important in relationship to the pre-modern archive um, because so much of white critical uh, theory, especially in relationship to gender and sexuality studies, um, is, is predicated on a white European, um, is predicated on a white European gaze, or what Haines Garcia points to in Walter Mignolo's decolonial work in early modern study as the colonial difference. Um, the temporal pre-modern and a rigorous reckoning and working on pre-modern critical intersectionality are important interlocutors in this conversation. What happens if there are other pre-modern genealogies? What if scholars attend genealogies that dislodge the white Eurocentric binary, white supremacist colonial ones that have become the violent colonial narrative that have fed the devastation of global, um, global colonialism and white supremacy? Hamas Garcia and Black Indigenous women of color, feminist scholars like Maria Lagones, see the possibility of grounding a discussion of queer theory and intersectionality with a wider scope, more capacious genealogies, and the ability to put forward potential liberation in the work of decolonial, anti-colonial, third world transnational women of color feminisms. Why do we not imagine that all genders, why do we not imagine that all genders um, and sexuality studies work be done through the lens of intersectionality? Or are we imagining that whiteness is not a racial category that must be reckoned with? Is it even possible to work through any kind of pre-modern gender studies without thinking about race, sexuality, class, disability, and how they all interlock, especially in relationship to pre-modern critical intersectionality, which is also filled with added complexities because the different identities that we are discussing are all in contextual flux beholden to local conditions, geographies, and frictions. Theoretically, the work of pre-modern gender and sexuality studies must always be using, must always use the method of pre-modern critical intersectionality, unless pre-modern critical, pre-modern scholars do not want to be involved in, a, in current gender and sexuality studies research. Otherwise, as Crenshaw states, quote, it sets forth a problematic consequence of the tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis, end quote. It becomes a single access framework that already ignores the issues of intersectional identities and compounded harms. Within discussions of intersectionality, um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's reassessment of the Kambahi uh, River Collective and Mickey Kendall's book, Hood Feminism, provide useful avenues to think through the pre-modern archive. Taylor's discussion of the importance of the CRC also highlights another point in relationship to the use of the term identity politics and how pre-modern critical intersectionality must understand that the issues of intersecting oppressions are not theoretical, but material. She writes, quote, the CRC identified um, their recognition of this political tension as identity politics. The CRC statement is believed to be the first text where the term identity politics is used. Since 1977, that term has been used, abused, and reconfigured into something foreign to its creators. The CRC made two key observations in their use of identity politics. The first was that oppression on the basis of identity, whether it was racial, gender, or class, or sexual orientation identity, was a source of political radicalization. Black women were not radicalizing over abstract issues of doctrine. They were radicalizing because of the ways um, that their multiple identities opened them up to overlapping oppression and exploitation, unquote. We highlight this point first to underscore that to discuss pre-modern critical intersectionality is to discuss politics in relationship to the material harms done to people as they lived within intersectional oppressions. 
This is not a theoretical discussion. It has material consequences, effects, and impacts. It is not a game. It is often about life and death or death, also known as necropolitics. It should also be seen as a form of social theory in relationship to political and social resistance, both in the world and also in academia. Pre-modern critical intersectionality situates itself theoretically in the material turn of both gender studies, um, critical race studies, and sexuality. In fact, one of its genealogies is then a move away from the linguistic turn. Um, the linguistic turn, so emphatically a part of the white canon of queer theory vis-a-vis -vis Judith Butler's work, to the material work turn. This um, elegantly laid, this is elegantly laid out in Stacey Alamon's Heckman's um, Introduction, Emerging Models and Material, Materiality and Feminist Theory from 2008. This intertwines with the material genealogy um, of critical race theory that loops in Hortense Spillers, um, Sylvia Winter's work, Jasper Poire, Alexander Wehilea, and Catherine McKittrick. Um, it also considers a longer, long entwined genealogies laid out here as part of the conversation to re-examine the pre-modern past in order to do the work of intersectional feminist resistance, repair, and radical praxis. This is the only way we see, oh, this is the only way we see to work in the pre-modern archive that will do justice to the political work of gender, race, and sexuality now. So in my original chapter, the next section were actually a cluster of different case studies in different regions, conditions, contexts, and different media platforms, uh, whether it be hagiography, hey legal codes, um, life writing. Um, but because of time, I'm going to just now focus and turn my turn the talk to this case study from 13th century England. Um, so Jewish women and the English uh, uh, legal secular courts, a tale of two wives. So, um, so this case study involves two Jewish women whose lives were deeply intertwined with each other in 13th century England. We will approach the study through documentary evidence in English secular and Christian religious court cases. In general, the plea roles of the exchequer of the Jews assiduously documented the legal disputes in relationship to Jews um, and has an archive of material related to Jewish women. This is separate from their involvement in medieval English Jewish courts, which mostly address family law. So this section will focus on pre-modern critical intersectionality and the original legal heft of the formulation in relationship to Crenshaw's work and others on how it's, it is seen in law. The comparison of having both Jewish and secular English court, court adjudicate Jewish conflict is a good lens to see how pre-modern critical intersectionality can be used as a lens to discuss compounded harm in relationship to Jewish women. Geraldine Hang has explained both in England and the Jews and in the invention of race in the European Middle Ages, how England through the machinery of its structural bureaucracy and state enacted one of the first racialized systems in relationship to English Jews in 12th and 13th century England. Jewish women had intersectional identities involved, involving their racialized uh, religion and their gender in medieval 13th century England. Both Crenshaw's early articles on intersectionality um, demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex, a black feminist critique of anti-discrimination doctrine, feminist theory and anti-racist politics, and mapping the margins, intersectionality, identity politics, and violence against women of color are useful interlocutors in the case of um, Muriel of Oxford and Licaricia of Winchester. So both women were married um, to David of Oxford in the first half of the 13th century. Muriel was, quote, probably born into a learned family in Lincoln, 
um, unquote, where she married David of Oxford. They relocated to Oxford in circa 1217 and worked together in relation to the family business as accounted in several legal deeds. Um, David of Oxford was one of the richest Jewish men in the 13th, in 13th century England. Quote, by 1240, David was a major figure in the Anglo-Jewish community, both locally and nationally, accounting for many loans to powerful political figures, unquote. However, though Muriel had financial privilege while married to David and participated in, in business transaction, Muriel also was at a marital disadvantage since she never gave birth to a child. This childless state precipitated a legal court battle that traversed both the Jewish court and the English secular court. David pursued a divorce in the Jewish court and was successful in acquiring a get, a bill of divorce, probably in 1240 on the grounds of infertility. Muriel refused this divorce and countersued because she did not give consent as per her Jewish Talmud, as per Jewish Talmudic law, and she pursued a betin um, in the rabbinic court judgment from, quote, the local Oxford rabbi Jacob and rabbis Moses from London and Aaron from Canterbury, unquote. She and her allies appear to have enough power and network within the English Jewish community to also get further opinions from French rabbis on the case. As a Jewish woman with some family networks, Muriel was at first able to work um, the levers of legal response within the Jewish court. However, the secular English court stepped in when David convinced the, quote, the royal curia, which was which was sitting at Winchester to intervene, unquote, in 1242. Walter de Grey, Archbishop of York, fulfilled David of Oxford's express wishes, but then in the process, not only stripped Muriel of her rights within a Jewish legal context, but also declared a complete ban on Betidine from England. Um, Muriel and her male supporters were summoned to the Royal Curia, interrogated about their request for French Jewish legal opinion during this process, the Archbishop handed David of Oxford the right to divorce and to remarry who he wished. He ends up marrying Licaricia Winchester, who immediately produces a son before uh, a son before David of Oxford's death in 1244. So the complexities of this case um, reveal how a single access framework cannot work in an analyzing the moves, nuances, and outcome of Muriel of Oxford's divorce. In Crenshaw's Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, she discusses several cases that fail in court, court to address both the intersections of race and gender in relationship to anti-discrimination. She writes about several Title VII cases that cannot address the compounded harms of intersectionality, such as the de, um, de Graffin Ride versus General Motors case from 1976. Quote, in de Graffin, de Graffin Ride, um, five Black women brought suit against General Motors, alleging that the employer's um, senior seniority system perpetuated the effects of past discrimination against Black women. Evidence seduced at trial revealed that General Motors simply did not hire Black women prior to 1964, and that all of the Black women hired after 1970 lost their jobs in a seniority-based layoff during a subsequent recession. The district court granted summary judgment for the defendant rejecting the plaintiff's attempt to bring suit not on behalf of Blacks or women, but specifically on behalf of Black women, unquote. In Muriel of Oxford's case, a single access framework addresses only how the legal systems discriminate against her because of gender. In the divorce case, one can track how gender puts her on inequitable footing in the Jewish legal court and her counterclaim pursuit on grounds of her rights of consent within Jewish rabbinical legal frames about marriage and childlessness. 
However, the English Christian court's intervention into the high profile Jewish family court case reveals that one cannot analyze Muriel in relationship to a single access lens as an issue of gender only, nor as only an issue based on race, religious difference. Instead, the intersection of race and gender is the only way to analyze her case through a multi-axis lens. What the outcome also demonstrates since the English Archbishop then proceeded to ban this option available in Jewish legal court is the compounded effect and impact not just on Muriel of Oxford, but for subsequent other Jewish legal cases that would involve a bet dean. The effect of this divorce on Muriel of Oxford's life would culminate in the last documentary evidence we have of her through another court filing. In this case, this was again the case, this was a case in English court through, through those secular this time. Um, and this is in the close roles of the English exchequer. In 1253, a case made against Muriel of Oxford because of her house's disrepair, whose living she received as a settlement in divorce. At this point, her landlord is Licorisha of Winchester, who inherited the house after David of Oxford's uh, death. Muriel of Oxford appears to have sunk into a state of diminished financial means, if not poverty, for her to be unable to make repairs on the house she is living in. Pre-modern critical intersectionality reveals how poverty and basic needs are issues for women at the intersections of gender, race, and class. Licorice Winchester, David of Oxford's second wife, is the section's second example. Though Licorice Winchester is astoundingly wealthy, since she was married first, widowed, then inherited her husband's estate before she married David of Oxford, this does not mean the issues of gender and race did not impact her in relationship to compounded harms. Lucretia's name is prominent in the English records because of the multiple business and legal cases that she was involved in. However, what we will examine now is the last legal case connected to her name, her murder case. In mapping the margins, intersectionality and identity politics um, and violence against women of color, Crenshaw addresses one of the pressing issues and discussions around intersectionality, violence against uh, black indigenous women of color. She writes, quote, my objective here is to advance the telling of that location by exploring the race and gender dimensions of violence against women of color. Contemporary feminist and anti-racist discourses have failed to consider the intersections of racism and patriarchy, focusing on two dimensions of male violence against women, battering and rape. I consider how the experience of women of color are frequently the product of intersecting patterns of racism and sexism, and how these experiences tend not to be represented within the discourse of either feminism or anti-racism, unquote. Licarisha Winchester was at home with her Christian maidservants, Alice of Victon in 1277, when a possible burglary resulted in their murder. The 1275 statutes of jury forbade the cohabitation of Christians with Jews, though Lucretia clearly ignored this law. Her daughter, Belia, found their bodies. The court case was described, describes the scene, quote, um, Lucretia Winchester, Alice Blixton, her servant, um, Famili uh, were found killed in the house in the same, of the same Lucretia, each having um, a blow to the chest made by a knife in the heart, unquote. Her daughter and 12 other witnesses gave testimony at the murder trial. Their testimony explained that one Ralph of Cheswell, a Sadler of Winchester, had killed Lucretia and Alice and had immediately fled. Though the testimony indicated one suspect, Ralph of Cheswell, um, others were accused of the crime and subsequently cleared, um, though, during a though during a jury hearing. These men, Roger Les uh, Lescure, Otto Velsealer, uh, John Les um, Splatier, also, na also named Ralph Lesseller, Presumably, this was the original suspect since his name meant the Sadler as the murderer. Um, 
So the critics Brown and McCartney discuss how no one was indicted for Lucretia's and Alice's murder, even though two of her sons tried to file a murder charge against uh, Roger uh, Lester and the others who had murdered Lucretia. The case failed and Lucretia and Alice's murders never received ju justice. In an intersectional approach, we believe the only way to adequately address the murder and its subsequent failed indictments is to consider Lucretia as the main target and Alice as the other murdered women. Though multiple witnesses identified and gave testimony to the guilt of Ralph LaSeller, none of the testimony, whether they were Jewish or Christian witnesses, appeared to be enough to indict the consistently accused suspect of these homicides. We might consider this a case of, in Crenshaw's words, quote, structural intersectionality, unquote. Structural intersectionality is described as the ways in which the location of women of color at the intersection of race and gender make our actual experiences of domestic violence, rape, and remedial reform qualitatively different than that of, of white women, unquote. In this instance, though Lucretia Winchester's class status as one of the wealthiest Jewish women in 13th century England does not immure her to the intersecting issues of gender and race and how that situates her murder and the murder of a Christian maidservant by the purported Christian man, Ralph, Ralph LaSeller and her family's inability to receive appropriate justice for this double homicide and home invasion. It is impossible to analyze this case in relation to just a single access framework of just race um, or gender. It can only be unpacked with a discussion of structural intersectionality, the compounded harms of race and gender, and how that is worked through the English secular legal system and its inability, even with the, uh, over a dozen witness testimonies, to indict a Christian man for, this for these heinous crimes. These identity politics and situational power issues local to Winchester are the only avenue in which to appropriately tease out this violent legal case. David of Oxford's two wives, Muriel of Oxford and Lucretia of Winchester, are examples of how pre-modern critical intersectionality can be applied through legal court cases, but with different angles. In the case of Muriel of Oxford, we see how her inability to advocate uh, for her marriage rights push her into poverty, and also how, English, uh, how the English legal system disenfranchised her rights as a Jewish woman and enacts, uh, and enacts compounded harm that affects the rest of her life. In regards to Lucretia Winchester, we see how even though she has vast financial resources and a deep network of powerful family, it did not stop what seems to be racialized gendered violence to end her life and the a life of Alice, her living servant. Her family's inability to obtain justice through the English courts only highlights the unequitable system that allows over a dozen witness testimony, testimonies be, to be insufficient to bring Ralph LaSeller to, uh, to trial or indict anyone for the double homicide and burglary that happened in um, Lucretia Winchester's home. So in conclusion, Patricia Hill Collins discusses intersectionality as a social theory and particularly the importance of how critical intersectionality helps to understand and unpack how power works, quote, Many intellectual histories overlook the importance of power relations in shaping questions, assumptions, knowledge, and impact of a given social theory. Intersectionality itself can be seen as a knowledge project of resistance, one in which critical analysis underpins its intellectual resistance. Intersectionality also confronts epistemological challenges to its intellectual resistance. Particular knowledge projects are sites of intellectual resistance, and critical social theory is, particular, is a particular form of intellectual resistance, unquote. Collins' recent work explains the consequences of working on intersectionality, quote, if practitioners do not pursue inter intersectionality's critical theoretical possibilities, it would become just another form of, as a friend of mine put it, academic bullshit. 
that joins an arsenal of projects whose progressive and radical potential have, has waned, end quote. This then is an activist scholarly praxis that focuses on pushing for social change. Pre-modern critical intersectionality is an important part of the project since the pre-modern archive has become such a central node in enacting compounded harm onto Black Indigenous women of color. And our task as scholars in the pre-modern must, must uh, be to help dislodge these pre-modern weapons that uphold white supremacy and colonial violence and fantasies of white heritage. In addition, recent discussions of intersectionality, um, discussion of intersectionality points to the importance of making central the issue of the most vulnerable and to highlight issues of access to basic needs, poverty, hunger, and in the ethos of the discussion of intersectionality, centering the most marginalized to lift all. Mickey Kendall explains, quote, this tendency to assume that all women are experiencing the same struggles has led us to a place where reproductive health imagery centers on cisgendered able-bodied women to the exclusion of those who are trans, intersex, or otherwise inhabiting bodies that don't fit the narrow idea that genitalia dictates gender. You can have no uterus and still be a woman after all, unquote. Kendall's book especially highlights the importance of uh, focusing on basic needs. This requires scholars of the pre-modern to forego critiques that constantly valorize white women as possessors of power. Power to do what is a case study that examines elite white women having power intersectional. Can it be? Or are elite women um, having power a form of intersectionality? If discussing women having white power or white representation is part of second wave feminism, then why is this still a theoretical bulwark in our pre-modern gender and sexuality scholarship? Kendall's answer to these questions are clear. Instead of prestige and royal power, she asks us to consider thinking about food insecurity and sex work, for example, as fundamentally feminist issues. These ideas are echoed in Taylor's reassessment of the power of the combined of the collective and their statement, quote, but identity politics was not just about what, who you, are, you were, it was also about what you could do to confront the oppression you were facing. Or as black women have argued within broader, the broader feminist movement, the personal is political. The slogan was not just about lifestyle issues as it came to be popularly understood, rather it was initially about how the experience within the lives of black women shaped their political outlook. The experience of oppression, humiliation, and the indignities created by poverty, racism, and sexism opened Black women up to the possibility of radical and revolutionary politics, end quote. It's this emphasis on critical intersectionality to focus on the issues of most need, poverty, sexual violence, work, class, sexuality, disability, race, as intersection, intersecting and enmeshed issues that will allow us to think about critical intersectionality as a work of not just theory and self-reflection, but praxis. Pre-modern critical intersectionality is how pre-modern critical race, gender, sexuality studies can be used to discuss enmeshed identity politics related to class, race, gender, sexuality, religion, disability. It is a multi-axis project. Uh, it is a multi-axis pre-modern critical lens that can help rethink specific contextual research and teaching subjects. This chapter has also been about re-examining intersectional method and theory to address fluctuating and in-process medieval identity politics. I hope that my discussion today also has the added effect of allowing um, the audience to consider how pre-modern critical intersectionality as a praxis related to community politics and resistance. The examples of Muriel of Oxford and Lucretia Winchester are different contextual cases in the pre-modern archive that can explain the legal maneuvers of different courts highlight, that highlight how um, pre-modern critical intersectionality is crucial to understand uh, white Christian hegemonic, how white Christian hegemonic law 
upholds structural intersectionality and compounded harms. Um, thank you.